Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I am Rivka Rivera. So Rivka, we're going to be doing a special episode next week. We will be doing, uh, I'm saying this to you like as if you don't already know this. Um, <laughs> no, this is actually, um, this is directed towards the audience. I was ready to play along. I was <laughs> Is that the script? <laughs> I'm sorry. I stole an acting opportunity from you. Um, I'll make it up to you. Zane. Not in this climate. Uh, <laughs> that's right. We're going to talk about it. Um, but next week, we're going to be doing a mailbag episode. So if you have any questions for us, could be about anything. It could be about movies. could be about politics. could be about anything. Uh, you can email us at moviesvscapitalism at gmail.com. That's moviesvscapitalism. Uh, or you can DM us on Instagram. And so next week we'll be answering uh, your questions. So send them in. You only have a short amount of time. Do it now. Do it now. But Riv, what's up? So we're now a week after the SAG deal, or about a week and a half after the SAG deal has been reached, and we now have learned more about these contracts. Yeah. Uh, I actually haven't dug into this too much, but you have been. Yeah. I actually, my dad was in town and... um we had like we were like all gonna have dinner we ended up just watching this which thankfully they were into because it was in fact three and a half hours and i could but it was riveting i do recommend if you're into unions and stuff like like i think even for what the non it? like they're doing informational meetings so this is sag's informational meeting oh okay about the contract so yes as you set up Basically, in the next few weeks, our members, which are 100, there are 160,000 SAC members, are going to vote either yes or no to ratify this new contract. And this deal was approved with an 86% vote by the union's board members. So almost everyone, but not everyone. And there's a few really vocal and important dissenting board members and also just some vocal members who'd kind of been such as Justine Bateman, who's a filmmaker, and also sister to... Yeah, Jason Bateman. Yeah, they Jason are <laughs> yes. siblings. Anyways, Justine Bateman's been making some really um, important points and, and is also has a, a background in computer science. So not everybody was, was it's been fully on board with this, but it was important, you know... I start at sag after members are starting to get more information there is an 18 page deal summary available for members to read and these informational sessions however a really important thing to know is that the actual deal is not available for us to read the reason that duncan crabtree ireland he's like the one who's kind of he fielded all the questions and he's been one of the leads on making the deal with fran Drescher. anyways their point about why we don't have the whole contract to read is, A, it's not ready, even though the WGA was able to read it, that it's going to okay. be very long and it is not ready. The good faith reading of this I heard from that I've heard from some actors because there's lots of feelings happening. The good faith reading I heard is like, OK, maybe the, the legal team is really doing due diligence to hopefully make sure all of the language. There's so much in there. There's like so much that they're trying to get. And I think a point that... um Crabtree kept making was that we had nothing going into this. It was a total blank page when it came to AI. So at least now we have something because without 
anything, it's like nearly impossible to litigate any kind of issues with AI. Okay, that's the good faith stuff, right? Going into this, that's what they kept saying. I got to tell you, I told you this is this informational session I watched was three and a half hours. I thought, okay, maybe within two hours, things will come up. 15 minutes in, me and Tommy, my partner's jaw on the floor, like, this can't be it. I'm sorry. This was my emotional response was just like, this is bad. Like, if I know this is I thought it was going to take me a while to figure out why it didn't feel good. It feels bad. And I will get into it. Yeah. Yeah. So what's in it? What is it that that raised a red flag for you? I want to get into it, but I want to just share a clip. I think before I get into it, there were what I really found moving was there were like a, a lot of actors who were taking the opportunity to get on mic and ask really important questions. And I think the tone of a lot of this was we really appreciate what you've done for us for all the negotiating, but I don't know if this is good enough. And we've all been putting our bodies on the line. You know, everyone's been out here for 118 days. So I just wanted this was an actor whose name is Karen West. And I just thought um, she spoke to a lot of these concerns in her question really well. So let's play this clip. Karen West, I've been. Uh... Wow, it's loud now. <laughs> Uh, I've been a member of SAG uh, since 1979. Uh, I love you guys. I admire you. I know you've gotten a hell of a good things for us. I feel, as I told Francis earlier, I'm at that holiday party where everything's going well, but then the drunk cousin shows up. <laughs> And it's the ugly issue we're focusing on, not the fun at the party. I still have that champagne in the fridge, but I can't celebrate yet because I'm really, really concerned. Our union protects us that when we say no, we don't get retaliated against. Unions fail when they say, we don't need you, we can replace you. They did that a little bit with the SAG commercial strike. We'll just get non-union. So I'm worried about a replica of myself. I'm worried that if, because this is for me an existential moment for all of AI. You know it, I know it. And the intrusion of AI in our labor market. I don't understand if the Writers Guild refused to let AI write any scripts, why, you know, and I'm confounded where we're letting our bodies, literally, and our body of work to be free to replicate in perpetuity. It's the same fight, and Writers Guild won it. What is, what is the mechanism if I don't give consent? So they don't hire me, retaliation. Who is going to sue them for discrimination? I don't have the money, I'm a working class actor. Who is gonna sue them for that discrimination? I've heard that and on solidarity, well, we'll sue them if they have that discriminatory practice. And the other thing is, if we give in to all of this and they can, you know, Ted Sarando said, Oh, we, we're okay till October because we have stockpiled all these scripts. We're fine. F from here on in, they can stockpile all our digital replicas. 
and if we're trying to fight for more in 2025, and they go, you know what? We got stockpiled you, we don't need you. What, what happens then? So those are my concerns. I love you, this is difficult, it's painful for me to even have to say this. When I like that, because you, really, you can really hear the emotion that I think is present, which is it's very, as she said, being at a holiday party, not ready to celebrate, wanting to, but recognizing like we have to, we still have a lot of fight left, like a huge amount of fight left. So the two things that were most concerning to me that Karen spoke to, the first being what is being touted as a win of saying, you know, there's this issue of individual consent. So prior when there was no regulations and just the blank page what what was beginning to happen was you might have someone come to you on set and just say sign this and you have no idea what it is now there has to be 48 hours before you can give individual consent to how to potentially having your ai being used on your image there's still so much vague language around that however what later comes up is the idea that this is going to be now part of your working conditions. So working conditions are like if I'm going in for a job and some of the working conditions are there's nudity in this. Are you OK with that? I can consent to yes or no. If I'm not, I'm not going to get the job. That's part of the working conditions might be location. Do you want to move to Los Angeles? You have the shoots in L.A. You're going to have to move to L.A. You consent yes or no. The difference between those kind of working conditions and an AI working condition is that AI is just going to be what every job requires. So there, you might have consent, but doesn't it become an issue of forced consent? Yeah, and that's what um, this woman, this actor, Karen, was speaking to in, in that clip. And very well, I should say. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's a real bummer. I mean, I knew a little bit about this as, I, as some of the the details were coming out but now i'm kind of like getting the full scope of what was actually negotiated and yeah karen was right like if the writers can win the writers basically won like you can't use like you you can't use ai to to write scripts and you can't use our scripts to teach ai and what sag basically has gotten is you can but if the actors consent and then it becomes a question of you know, are you going to potentially be turning down work because you don't want your likeness to be used in perpetuity? And you will be. If she says later on, there will always be a hungry actor who will say yes, and they'll stockpile it. Like yep. they, there will always be. So the other issue she spoke to, which is really concerning, is collective bargaining. Because one thing people are saying is, and I think something that that the union is saying is, hey, this is the this is as best this is as good as we're going to get. It's better than what we had. Go with this and fight the fight next time, right? Which I understand. I think the concern, another actor had also brought this up later earlier on, was if they're stockpiling AI, how does that affect our collective bargaining in the future? And Crabtree does speak to this. I don't saying, you know, well, they did have scripts and some, I don't think, I don't think it's the same thing at all. I'm very concerned about that, about how this might weaken our stance in the future. Absolutely. The way that technology has advanced means that if they get granted, I don't know how any of this AI acting actually works, but like, I don't know, imagine they get t like 10,000 likenesses and then they're good forever. Another big part of this is that uh, producers also need to receive consent for creating synthetic performers, yeah. meaning they'll train AI to, uh, you know, watch 
10 different actors and synthesize all of their likenesses together to create a fake actor. So if AI can just create fake actors and we get to a place where this isn't already regulated in these contracts, then the studios will just do that. They will just 100, they will 1 million percent do that. So I tend to agree. I don't think this is enough for the moment. And I think the actors have held the line for so long that this would be the time to just dig in. And there's not going to be a time for the union to have more bargaining power than now. And who knows? I mean, I'm not sure. I think the big concern, I think the big question now is like for actors is how do we vote? If I vote yes and i'm not necessarily happy about it but think like it's better than nothing you know and i i'm personally just so sick of this it's better than nothing i i think i'm in a place um brianna joy just had ralph nader on her podcast bad faith and they were talking ralph nader was talking about voting from your conscience and i just feel like i don't i don't know if i cannot vote on this with my conscience and my conscience and my gut says it's a no um for the same reason karen said you know, I think you could do better. I also was reading, there's a Rolling Stones article that just came out interviewing Sean Sharma. I hope I'm saying their name correctly, who was a dissenting board member who spoke about how they felt that it was really pressured by some of the elite acting class and the Mm. AMPTP and didn't feel that in the last days of negotiation, they were at their best. So this is all part of it. But I do think, I do think, um, in the conversations, my dad, as I said, watched this with me. I appreciated him for bringing me in a broader scope of like, this is not an actor issue, right? This is, AI is a global workers issue. So yeah. if there's strategy, it's going to have to eventually be general strike. It's going to have to be workers uniting over these issues of AI because I don't actually know. We are kind of alone at this moment because WGA got there contract and yeah so i don't know strategically what there is there's certainly no one who's saying vote no and here's the plan i just know i think at this point i have to vote with my conscience do you have any sense from speaking to other actors in the union how people are generally feeling about this contract that night after that informational i mean i had so many people call me in a deep existential crisis feeling Damn, i think okay. there was just something about it that just revealed how deep like this is this is the best we can get after this long it just really kind of pulled the curtain back on how existential of a threat this is people feeling really dark about it and i think now trying to find hope and and a path through and like confused truly about what the best move is to do with their vote Damn. Well, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm sorry that the the deal wasn't what it should be and that it's putting you in this position. And it's all of us. I do think that's going to be important to be like and I appreciate you saying that, but like this is all of us. You know, this is like and I needed that. To, I needed to remember like this is not an actor issue. This is a worker issue and this is like going to happen. I think you know, the, I think there'll I do think there'll be moves towards a general strike i do think union i do think this is going to become very this is going to be a massive it's just this is just the beginning it'll have to be at some point there'll be enough ai and automation that takes over enough jobs where just only a few people own everything and no one else can make a living toiling for them then the whole system absolutely falls apart so we, we will reach a tipping point at some point in the future for sure yeah. All right. Well, that was a pretty on theme discussion for us, which where where we're gonna go next, which is our conversation uh, about the film network with 
screenwriter Josh Olson. But before we do, we just want to let you know, or rather remind you, that this podcast is produced by the two of us. Yes, we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supported supporting this show. You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you could find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast app. It takes two seconds, and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, and we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Josh Olson and our conversation about network. All right, we are very excited today to be joined by Josh Olson. Josh is an American screenwriter whose work includes the 2005 film A History of Violence, for which he received an Academy Award nomination, among other accolades. He's also the co-host of the podcasts The West Wing Thing, The Movies That Made Me, and The Audit, which is produced here uh, by The Lever. Josh Olson, welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. You know, Josh, I don't think we've actually spoken about this uh i only recently discovered that you wrote a history of violence and i just got to say like i'm sure you've, i'm sure you've heard you've gotten all this all the time but i fucking love that movie and i was just talking oh, about, about it to rivka b- beforehand and she was like i love that fucking movie yeah we've worked together for like a years now that that <laughs> no i mean i looked up your imdb i think when we started working together <laughs> right. but i just like never had the moment to be like hey josh ah, by the way great you know, film Thank yeah you. very good film that one that one came out okay what was it like working with Cronenberg? I'm curious. Uh, working with him was great. Uh, it was an amazing experience. I mean, it's it's you don't want to get too in depth, I'm sure, but uh, uh, yeah, could not have been a better creative collaborator. Um, basically, the uh, he he came on based on my script, and then the two of us got to sit in a room for a week and kind of walk through it page by page and talk, and then it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, you get, you get to see why he's such a great director because it was all about kind of pulling out the, the best version of the thing um, that was already there kind of. And, and I mean, it was exquisite. So just one of the best times of my life. Oh, that's, that's so great to hear, especially from a writer about like collaborating with a director, you know, that, that it was actually a collaborative experience. We got the chance to speak with uh, Patricia Resnick who wrote nine to five and she had the opposite mm. experience, which as soon as the director got brought on, she was basically ousted oh, from... Nine to five to herself, yeah. Well, that will, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. She's, <laughs> yeah, she's wonderful. She was great. Um, I'm really curious because I obviously know the film A History of Violence, but also your podcast, The West Wing Thing, which is great, and The Audit on the right. Lever. And so you do a lot of critical thinking from a lefty perspective about art like we do on this podcast and i'm curious as a creator i i've gotten asked this before and i i don't think there's i have feelings about it but i'm curious your feelings about it what the effect of being critical and thinking critically about art and then also creating simultaneously like what is your relationship to that process oh and they're they're the same thing you know um i mean i i i don't even know that they're two separate things. It's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it is the creative process. It is probably more conscious of, of kind of the analysis stuff that I do, but it all comes from the same place. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's not like I'm sitting there when I'm writing something and going, does this pass my sort of ideological <laughs> litmus test? But, 
Um, you know, I'm also, I like to think at the point where in, in my own work, I'm sort of in tune enough with myself and what I'm trying to say that that's, that's not an issue. It's like, I'm not going to, mm. I'm not going to accidentally write some kind of, you know, <laughs> in, insane neoliberal gibberish without noticing that I'm doing <laughs> it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, critical faculties, I think are, are it's, it's, it's you, any, any judgment you ever hear me passing on somebody else's work is, is um, mild compared to the judgment I pass on my own on a minute-by-minute basis. So. Sure. But it's, it's the same thing. It's kind of like you, 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 have to look at, um, you have to look at yourself critically. You have to look at your work critically while you're creating it. Josh, do you ever kind of, do you ever feel like you're kind of on an island in Hollywood? Meaning that like Hollywood is like a very traditionally liberal place. Do you do you get pushback from either within the industry, from like friends who work within the industry that like, you know, from for having more of a I don't know, like a critical progressive leftist perspective, however you want to categorize it? It's an interesting question. Cause I mean, in terms of actual work, you know, because I don't write explicitly political stuff i try i try to do i'm a big fan of like the 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 sort of classic filmmakers that scorsese used to call or that he's called smugglers the people who try to sort of like make kind of mainstream movies and kind of smuggle the nefarious ideas in so i tend to be working kind of mainstream kind of entertainment i'm not you know not writing oliver stone films but but you are trying to kind of do things with them and hope you get away with them that um, and 99 times out of 100, the, the problem is not that somebody recognizes what you're doing and goes, oh, we mustn't have that. It's just that they just kind of run a steamroller over it. And by the time they're done, you don't recognize where <laughs> where it all went. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in terms of socially, it, it's more of a kind of because, you know, certainly my politics have have impacted my my work. I think a bit, uh, you know, sort of really starting in 2016, because, of course, you know, pre-2016, if you were a leftist in America, you sort of felt like, you know, you were out on a, on a lifeboat somewhere and there weren't really that many others. And, you know, that whole, the whole Bernie movement was kind of such a, such an eye-opening experience when you realize that this guy that, you know, we all knew about, we all kind of loved when he'd pop up like once every blue moon on mainstream media. And you'd be like, wouldn't it be great to live in a world where that guy was, you know, <laughs> taken seriously as a politician. And then all of a sudden you wake up and he's feeling football stadiums without getting any media attention and you're like i'm not alone and finding out that there are other people even other people here who feel the same way but yeah it's funny because you know la as we saw in the last primary it's weird i feel like hollywood is sort of like you know uh, biden town but considering how bernie did in the you know the last primary it's also like it's bernie land Mm -hmm. so you know the industry is is still pretty stodgy and, and liberal and so forth. But, um, you know, L.A. itself, not so much. But, yeah, I mean, it's a constant. But but in terms of how it's affected me professionally, minimally, I know a couple of producers have, you know, um, gotten into it with them and so forth, that it's unlikely that we'll end up working together in the near future. But it's it's an interesting, it's interesting waters to navigate, I will say. Yeah. Well, you picked... A great film for us to watch today, and I'm really excited. Or rather, we to... asked we asked you or to rather watch it we, with us. Yeah, we we chose <laughs> yes. you. Yeah, this is a, this is a re- usually the guest picks the movie. This was an instance, at, so full disclosure to the audience, that uh, our original guest uh, bailed on us. So Josh was kind oh. enough to step in, and actually, I'm actually more excited to speak with you about this film. Oh wow! Who is the original guest? Now I got it. Well, we'll tell you uh, afterwards. <laughs> spicy frank okay so the film that we are talking about is network 
which came out in 1976, directed by Sidney Lumet, written by Patty Chayefsky, starring Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Peter Finch, Robert Duvall, and many more. The budget was $3.8 million, around $3.8 million, and the film grossed worldwide $23.7 million. The film had nine Oscar nominations at the 49th Academy Awards, including Best Picture, that led to four wins, Best Actor for Peter Finch, Best Actress for Faye Dunaway, and Best Supporting Actress for Beatrice Strait, and Best Original Screenplay. I believe it was Chayefsky's third Oscar win. Network, in case you have not seen it in a while, is a satirical, f- or have never seen it. If you've never seen it, stop listening to us. Watch it immediately. Come <laughs> yeah, back. Yeah, go watch don't, it. Don't let us screw it up. <laughs> It's a satirical film about a fictional television network, the union broadcasting system, UBS, and its struggle with declining ratings. After being told he will be fired for his poor ratings, news anchor Howard Beale pleads with viewers to stay tuned for his final broadcast. However, he instead has an on-air meltdown, which results in a spike in ratings. The network's executives decide to exploit Beale's antics, creating a media sensation. Hilarity ensues, as we said. So the year, as Rivka mentioned, is 1976. So a little bit of historical context for when this film is released. The United States is about to celebrate its bicentennial with fireworks and nautical parades. Jimmy Carter has just been elected the 39th president. Three years after being kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, Patty Hearst is convicted of bank robbery and is sentenced to 35 years in prison. Uh, that term is later reduced to seven years. On television, Happy Days is the most popular show. The film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest wins Best Picture, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show wins its second straight Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series. The average family income is $16,000 a year. A new house costs around $43,000, and the retail price for a gallon of gas averages $0.59. Cents. On April 1st, Apple Computer is found by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and also the Perrier bottled water is introduced in the United States. That's it. You know, that's all you needed to know about what was happening in 1976. Pretty much. So, Josh, we usually start the conversation asking our guest, why did you choose this movie for us to watch? Can't ask that question. So I will ask you, why is this an important film for understanding the media, the modern day media ecosystem? I'm not even sure it is anymore, to be honest. I mean, it it's a movie now that, you know, it's it's hard to for some people to get. Um, you know, I was I was a kid when this came out. My dad took me to a lot of wildly inappropriate movies, so I saw this in theaters <laughs> as as a child. And wow. uh, how, it, like about like about how old? Ten or eleven or something. But um, yeah. okay. But it's it's uh, he was he was predicting what he saw coming. It was not. If you looked carefully, you could see that he was right. It was not. He was not making observations that were common. But he was making observations that, when they were made, struck you as like, "Oh my God, this guy knows what he's talking about." If that makes sense, this mm-hmm. is this is what media is going to become, and it's been interesting going back and and watching this film over the years because you would watch it as we would get closer and closer to becoming the the you know Chayefsky's vision, and now here we sit in twenty twenty three and. You know, Chayefsky's vision became reality so far back in the rear view, it's hard to remember that this movie was predictive and that it was satirical mm. and mm. all the rest of that. It's like, um, I can almost see somebody watching it today and going, why would you make a movie about this? This is, you know, it's like a slice of this life on CNN. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> except for the amazing mm. dialogue, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. And it's a really, it's a fascinating movie on that front. And also because Chayefsky was so good, 
Um, it's not, how do you say, it's not one-sided. It's not didactic as much as he is very much railing against a real thing that he really, really, really hates and fears. He's not, uh, his characters aren't black and white. They aren't, they aren't a bunch of innocents trapped in a world they never made. Um, they are complicit in the creation of, of the future that, that is coming to eat them alive. Uh, they are flawed at best. They are, it's an amazing, amazing screenplay. And he was a great writer for, for screenwriters. One of many things that we love about the film is that, um, and, and this is a testimony to Sidney Lumet as well, who is one of the great filmmakers and who understood very much the power of the script. The opening credit in the movie, if you remember, it is Network by Patty Chayefsky. You don't see that credit in American films. Mm. You just don't. Because mm. um, he didn't direct it, he wrote it. And we have this insane sense that uh, directors are somehow the authors of movies, which is um, a, a theory that has caused ungodly amounts of damage to not just writers, but I think to cinema and to working people. But yeah, so I mean, it's just, it's it's an amazing film on every level. The performances are, you know, you get some of the best actors in the world just getting to just, you know, go off at, at full speed. And uh, I mean, I could go on for hours about it, but mm. yeah, it's it's a beautiful piece of work. And we now live in an era where, uh, not not to go off, but having done something like, uh, how many, I have no idea how many episodes is the, the West Wing thing, 180. We watched every episode of the fucking West Wing and, and <laughs> dismant dismantled the terrible, terrible <laughs> politics of that show. But, you know, the fact that, um, and and much of this due to his own kind of campaigning, Aaron Sorkin is often perceived of as uh, our generation's Panachevsky. Gives you a sense of how far oh, we have God. sunk. Um, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somebody else pointed out that like his newsroom feels like his attempt to do network, mm. except the difference is he, he doesn't really understand that he should be raging against anything. You know, it's just mm -hmm. he, he lives in a world. Chevsky understands that the nostalgia these characters feel for a world that is disappearing is tainted by their own kind of flaws and corruption. Um, whereas Sorkin kind of just romanticizes it, you know, God damn, if we can only get back to the point when men did the news, you know, it's like, mm. that's so interesting. Your perspective on having seen it at the time, albeit very young <laughs> and the experience of watching it back now and feeling like, I mean, of course it, it, it feels like nothing compared to what we see. And yet, yeah. I found it because there are so few films with such clarity on the systemic issues in media. You know, we have our networks, we have our morning show, we have versions that were like, oh, this is doing this. And it, it just totally right. misses the mark and has yeah. such bad politics that I just think this holds up so well and is so salient and clear. It was interesting, Sidney Lumet said that when it came out, when it opened, everyone said, oh, it's a brilliant satire, but that Patty always said that he wrote it as reportage, sheer reportage. It wasn't meant to be a satire. It was just, right. as you had said, stating what was being seen. Um, and I would say that that holds up. It doesn't, it, it didn't feel aged to me in a lot of ways. Yeah. Even though what no. we see is so much more extreme, it it felt so honest and obvious. Well, measure it against, you know, it's it's a different medium, but measure it against all the president's men. I just did, a, in fact, another podcast where we we're talking about political movies. And I always make a point of, like, making sure, like, I I flat out reject the notion that all the president's men is a political movie. It's not about politics. Politics are just the, the 
you know, it, it, it's like saying a movie in which a reporter investigates a murder is a murder movie. It's not. It's about journalists investigating a story. Mm-hmm. But look at how they do it in that film. It's it's they're so ennobled. They're so it's just there's no questioning of the media that they're in or the impact it has. There's no uh, even you know nod towards the notion that that um, you know there's any kind of corporate control of that media. They're just damn good guys going out to get a story that's going to bring down this powerful person. That's a great film. I mean, I I don't mean to. I absolutely love all the president's men, but it exists in this kind of idyllic you know, knight in shining armor, you know, journalist as knight in shining armor universe, whereas network is like, we're five minutes away from this happening, folks. Yeah, I feel like the the only thing that network didn't really account for was like the advent of the internet, which is, you know, I mean, how could how could Chayesky have known at that time? But yeah. what he was putting his finger on... But even then, there's as, that Vox Populi episode where it's like, hey, let's just talk to people about what they think for half an hour, which is sort of like opening that, the door. You're to... absolutely right. I mean, a little bit of background for anyone who like doesn't know, like Chayefsky is has become this commemorated screenwriter of his time, and he personally... As he's watching, you know, news develop throughout the 70s, he personally is like, I fucking hate this. I like I hate television. I hate the medium. I think it's dumbing down our discourse. I think it's it's sensationalized. I think everyone is just pushing for ratings like the the corporate influence, the profit motive. So he seeks out to write this script as basically his what he deems the the cable news industry. He spent a lot of time in cable newsrooms where he said he was shocked by what he saw. Cable news was not a thing. You're right. Thank you. Thank you. TV news. And and this is the script that came of it. And I'm I was blown away in this rewatch because you're right like Sidney Lumet it cannot be overstated how brilliant his his blocking and his framing is in this mm-hmm. film yeah, incredible um, with actors and, yeah I just, and just like th- throughout there are just so many shots in this movie that just are like burned into your brain in just in the way in the creative way that he's found to frame it but e- even with all of the even with like the mastery of the filmmaking it is still the screenplay that shines through mm-hmm. more than anything which is i think a testament to everything that we're talking about specifically yeah. his his critique and the dialogue that he writes between these characters is just so rich and it just made me so sad rivka and i were we we met in acting school and so we would you know we audition i don't anymore but rivka still does but you know you get sides for stuff and you're like who the fuck wrote this? This is dog shit. Like I like I like like I could have wrote this this morning and it would have been better than the shit they're handing me. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty phenomenal. Now, now that the writer strike writer strike is over, I am allowed to acknowledge there are some bad writers in our union. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but uh, ask me during the next strike and I will have to call you out, sir. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it's a testimony to Lumet too, because um, you know, who is such a great director and so confident in who he was you know there, there's there's so many i mean there's so many giant directors who aren't that he didn't feel any need to you know as as with everything he did it was like what's what's the best thing i can do to serve this script this story so there's no at yes. no point do you see him going oh wait a minute how do i make this feel like a sydney lumet film what can i do to remind them that i'm here and he's like no man just shoot the fucking thing the way it needs to be shot and Get the best actors you can and direct the hell out of them and, you know, do, do what a great mm-hmm. director is supposed to do. I, I love him so much. It's To that exact point, I'm sure you know it, Josh, but there's a famous book that Sidney Lumet wrote called Making yes. Movies. And in it, yep. he talks about the the framing of Network and how because the movie was about corruption, there was a they corrupted the camera. So you notice it starts off with a very naturalistic look. 
and mm -hmm. slowly by the end it's totally a commercial so the the objective was that the camera would also become a victim of the television and i think that is right. just like that's it is is you are so yeah. tuned into the script and the purpose and the intention and the political intention of the film that you know how to move your camera and all the parts of the of the picture around that effort um and that's when you have a great great film like this he was a big fan of stuff like that where where the effect would be very slow and you would never you know nobody notices that stuff without lumet pointing it out to them and <laughs> stuttering film and it's like but you you the impact it has on you is immeasurable Yes. Because you are. You're looking at a different movie by the time it's over. And you're like, when the hell are you, when did that happen? It's like it's been happening in mm -hmm. every shot. Josh, you mentioned about how these characters, which I really, really appreciated, how these characters had room to be complicit. We didn't have to feel, as we so often feel in films about capitalism, that sort of ruins it, that they're just greedy at the end of the day, or it's not their fault, or everyone's a victim. Mm -hmm. And it captures something where certainly we see everyone complicit in the system, but it still maintains the clarity of the system. And there's all this nuance around. It didn't feel as simple as, oh, that's an inherently greedy person who potentially was just born greedy, you know, but and yet it right. also doesn't matter. We just see them functioning in this world. And I was particularly struck by I think Diana Christensen is one of the best characters ever written. She's great. And yeah. She especially, I love this character because she particularly is the opposite of, you know, this beginning of this girl boss that really started, it like really took off in the 80s and then just made a comeback in like the two, that millennial, you know, we love to say girl boss. Yeah. But when I think of that, it's like, it's the, like her maniacal capitalism and her ambition isn't like celebrated because she's a woman in this film in any way. Right. In fact, it's, it's unapologetic and it's very clear that, it's, it's somehow associated with the patriarchy in a way that doesn't feel like her feminine side is being taken away. It becomes very clear that it's yeah. like part of that system. And she's also suffering she's not, from it, right? It's She's, she's not alienated and she's dissociated. She's not written gender neutral. Yeah, you couldn't just drop a male actor into that thing. She's Exactly. But Chayefsky doesn't have... You know, and this 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 comes before. It's obviously it's after the kind of the women's live movement has really hit. I think Ms. Magazine started coming out a couple of years earlier and stuff. And 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 Chayefsky's, clearly it's 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 one of those things where you know he's like yeah sure fine. He doesn't fall prey to the thing that comes later, as you say, the girl boss thing. There's no like in Chayefsky's mind, it's like yeah of course women can be as mercenary and fucking horrible as men. Now can we get on with our story here? instead of having to dance around her gender as though it's, you know, a separate from her and separate from capitalism and all the rest of that stuff. Um, yeah, she's an amazing character. Uh, William Holden, too. I mean, I love his, his, like, you know, he can't help but be drawn to her as much as he knows it's bad for him uh, in mm -hmm. such an interesting way. And he's such a dick. That amazing speech he gives to his wife where you're almost going like, oh, wow, I get it. You're like, what an asshole. <laughs> In spite of the fact that it's an incredibly, but it's such a good speech because it's so self-serving. It's what he tells himself, you know? Yeah, yeah. I really hated him. <laughs> really didn't sit well. But I felt like I had permission to hate him. It didn't feel like I was yeah. having that experience of hating him and being like, oh, I'm supposed to like him. I was like, oh, I don't think I'm supposed to like him. And I love that. 
Yeah, he's just he's just one of the least awful people in this story is all. I feel like maybe the choice for for Diana's character to be a woman, it, it felt more of like a generational commentary than it did a gender commentary. Because yeah. like, you know, in this world, all of these old guard, you know, TV producers like Max, you know, the uh, anchors like Beale, and then obviously corporate executives like uh, Robert Duvall's character, those are all going to be white men for sure. So I thought right. it was, so I feel like maybe Chayefsky's choice to make Diana and then also Laureen, both women, it felt like more of a generational choice than than something that was going to be like strictly commenting on gender. Because I, I feel like, the, I feel well, she's also, Laureen Hobbs like, has also got a kind of Angela Davis thing going on as well. I mean, there's a kind of- Oh, definitely. There, I think. And that that's an aspect I think is really interesting in the film because our perceptions of these things change with time, especially our perceptions of representation. And I've, I've spoken to people who are, you know, uh, they think it's a problem with the film that the only black characters are this revolutionary army that's completely selling out for money. And that that is the era we live in now. If you were going to make this film now and you wanted to make the point clear, you'd have to make sure. And you would, of course, it's 2023. So there would be multiple opportunities for almost any of the characters in this thing to be black which back in 1976 or 75 when they made it was not the case. But also, you know, you have to understand that the perception of the kind of characters that she represents were uh, pretty revered sort of in certain circles. Chansky is not, I don't believe, I don't think he is holding them up to make fun of them. If anything, I think he's holding them up to show the incredibly corrupting influence of TV. It's like he wants yes. to take somebody that, you know, the audience that he cares about reaching because, you know, you're writing at a higher level then too. You're not worried about reaching four quadrants. He's like, I'm writing to people who see the world kind of the way I do to some extent trying to scare them and choosing this kind of black revolutionary army. They are going to be to that audience. They're actually going to be kind of sympathetic. So it's not, it's not like, you know, if you made the film today, your only black characters are just these like, you know, you know, amoral hacks who sell out for a dollar it's like if mm -hmm. anything it's the opposite it's like look what tv does it takes these people and and corrupts mm -hmm. even them yeah i would agree i would say that's part of what's so brilliant about it is everyone's every movement including the gender is being mm -hmm. co-opted for yeah. shareholders and it's yeah. got such a clarity on that from the beginning that that i never felt that anyone was being made fun of or minimized or blamed everyone held was part of that system you can see how somebody today would think it was him sort of like you know criticizing black liberation movements and in fact it's it's if anything it's the opposite but but again if you're making the movie today you'd have to recontextualize it a little bit different to make that clearer i mean i took it a little bit of like you know commentary on the splintering of of leftist organizations throughout the late 60s and 70s and how it had had kind of devolved into like you know the weather underground the symbionese liberation right. army so like there was i felt like some warranted commentary about how splintered the yeah left there may be a little bit of like yeah the old like people's liberation front of judea versus the judean liberation front that's a life of brian reference folks <laughs> You know what? That's one of the few Monty Pythons that I've never actually watched. I gotta. Oh my god! Gotta get to that. I know. That, I'm it's sorry. like saying, "Oh yeah, Susan Cage, one of the few Orson Welles movies I've never gotten around to." It's <laughs> all right. Well, this is why I left the entertainment industry, so I don't have to take shit from guys like you. <laughs> no, I think, but I totally agree with you that 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 their utility in the film is to show the corrupting force of television, and it's honestly it's one of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite, when uh, Lorraine Hobbs is just freaking out about the distribution rights. And I think my favorite points, quote is. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. The Communist Party isn't going to see one dime of these distribution rights. I was just like, that's fucking, that's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I do want to get into the Howard Beale part of this satire because that is sort of like the central, uh, it's the central plot of like what everything else in the story is revolving around. So if you haven't rewatched this movie in a while, it basically starts with Howard Beale, who is a, you know, a, he's been a TV news anchor for, for decades. He's at the end of his career. He's about to get fired. And then he basically has like a little bit of a nervous breakdown and announces he's going to kill himself on air. They end up pulling him. They put him back on. And then he sort of becomes uh, what what is described as the mad prophet of the airwaves after Diana Christensen realizes that she can tap into something. She says he's articulating the popular rage. The American people want somebody to articulate their rage for them. And so... I remember for the first time seeing this in college and being like, holy shit, like this is a full on presaging of what like the what at that time in the early 2000s, what cable news anchors had become. Um, And it's sort of like the linchpin of this entire film. And it's pretty brilliant. And I especially brilliant for me, because there are moments where in Beale's speeches, you know, when he's lambasting television as a medium when he's uh you know going after certain you know aspects of the tv industry or just like american culture that are feel completely right on but then there are other moments where you're like oh this guy's fucking losing his mind so i think it's a i think it's a really smart choice that chayefsky makes to to make like some of the things he's saying totally resonant and then other things you're like oh this guy's out of his fucking mind like this this guy needs to this guy needs help yeah I mean, he's clearly snapped. He's clearly had an episode. But yeah, at first, kind of the stuff he's saying kind of makes sense. The, um, uh, But it's broad enough that it connects with almost everybody. That's the great thing about the, the scene, you know, his mad as hell scene. And, you know, obviously I thought you were going to bring up sort of the Trump of it all, too, because there, there's that. It's like a guy who just sort of articulates or doesn't well, articulate, sure. um, sort of inarticulates. Is that a, is that mm-hmm. a word? Um, mm-hmm. Just the kind of general rage and anger that's that's running through the country. Uh, and then gets, I mean, we haven't mentioned, and to me, it's like you remove this scene, there's almost no movie, uh, Ned Beatty's speech. It's like he's oh, confronted yeah. by the real God, not the one who comes to him at night and says, because <laughs> you're on TV, schmuck, but the actual God, uh, the, the, the sort of the corporate control of the world. And Ned Beatty has a speech, it's about four minutes long, that is just one of the greatest speeches in the history of film because it just tells you how the world works. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and 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 then he goes off and preaches the gospel of of the corporation after that and mm-hmm. is broken. And it's so telling because you know I I think what Chayefsky nails in in the early part of Howard Beale where he's just quote unquote articulating the popular rage is that there's no actual analysis in what he's saying. There's right. no actual. He's not actually. Uh, it's not actually finding the systemic problems and pointing them out to people and explaining how things or why things are happening and, and why you should be angry about them. In fact, in, in the I'm mad as hell speech, he says, you know, don't call your Congress people. Don't write, you know, don't do anything. I wouldn't know what to tell you, even if even if you would, which I thought was just so perfect, because like that is what Donald Trump does, that it's just like we we should be angry and I will be angry. But the, the reasons or the. Uh, the diagnosis of the problem is completely non-existent. Or if anything, right. it's just, you know, if it's like a, you know, a, a, an extreme right winger, it's going to be, you know, the immigrants, the queer people, the whatever. It'll be some scapegoat. But as soon as Howard Beale actually does use actual analysis and diagnose a real problem, which is with the corporate structure of his news organization, that's when he crosses mm-hmm. the line. Like that's the, that is the one thing that is unacceptable in the eyes of his corporate overlords. I think it's a really good reminder of how to be critical of 
messaging and movements now and even movements that co-opt get co-opted really quickly by mainstream media by the elite it's a good reminder of oh if they're not if there's not an articulate <laughs> issue here and it's just a generalized statement about a feeling and there's not action connected to what this movement is asking for perhaps it's something i, I can be critical of and it's going to be easy for you know target or ug boots to get behind <laughs> they're, they're not dangerous yeah. and so that's just a good it's it's teaching us how to look at our our movements today i mean i hear it all the time from you know people on the left that are like the revolution is being you know bought and sold back to us and you see that constantly in like yeah the way that brands choose to market their stuff today you know like uh, the nfl being like we stand with black lives or you know whatever bullshit like whatever hollow what was empty the was the kylie jenner was it a pepsi ad oh my god oh my god <laughs> that was Trust. honestly that was so amazing that so many people because that, that's another that's another thing about hollywood is like so many people like hundreds and hundreds of people who had like say in the room all got together when they storyboarded that commercial they cast kylie good jenner idea. they got her people they all looked at it and they were all like yeah this is good no this is good this is this will help people this is not the kids will eat this up offensive. with a spoon <laughs> yeah. which boots riley um satirizes really well in sorry to bother you we never actually yep. brought that segment up so I'm glad, glad we get to come <laughs> back around to that. It's so well done. But yeah, that was absolutely ridiculous. And you see it all the time. And I think we've gotten immune to it. And I think it's important to keep your eyes out for it and question it. You know, I remember there was a debate. I had to talk to a lot of people about why it was so harmful and, pro and why people had were very upset to see the NYPD um, walking in the Pride March in New York. <laughs> you know and then it's very easy to let that it's like so easy to co-opt movements like pride movement you know and... oh sure yeah sorry i've been from the right too because i was like I mean, aren't there gay cops but yeah of course but then no i mean the it's, NYPD all, it's was so like, cynical and yeah, yeah no but i mean because that march and that movement originally started as at, they were a liberation movement and they were protesting against the police so it's right. yeah right. all the ways in which these and i think that's what this film really is at its essence which is also why i thought um seeing any movement it was important for them to show how a leader could be co-opted and that was the lesson i learned is like you can't trust a single you know we see it with our progressive politicians it's really easy for a single person to go in and get co-opted and get whatever happens behind closed doors whatever they're saying yeah um, which is why we need to strengthen our movements so that we can hold them accountable when that inevitably happens. Yeah. So you're so, but yeah, so there's no centralized leader that they can lock in a room with Ned Beatty for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's a completely ever, but there's a great, great, great Bill Hicks routine where he talks about that to some extent where he said, like, the thing is, you know, if you ever wonder what happens to these people, it's like, say you, say you actually manage to elect a good president. And he says, and the first thing they do is they lock him in a room and they show him footage of the Kennedy assassination from an angle no one has ever seen before. Oh. And then they go, do you have any questions? <laughs> like, yeah, what's my agenda, please? Honestly, probably not very far from the truth. You know, something I love about the, the Ned Beatty speech, I mean, there, I like other than, as you said, Josh, being one of the greatest monologues ever put to film, He's basically talking about the, the dictatorship of capital, the rule of capital, and how, you know, money is the all-encompassing, all-empowered thing that binds life together. And something that I picked up on this rewatch, he says, 
Uh, it is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today, mm -hmm. which I would fucking blew me away because like I I. I don't I doubt that Chayefsky was hearing, you know, people like defenders of capital or libertarians at that time being like, people are just naturally greedy. And you're like, that's why we you know, that's that's human nature. Human nature is to be competitive. It's to be self-interested. It's to be greedy, which this speech does perfectly to like to suggest to suggest that the, <laughs> the exchange of commodities, that is the natural world. That is the yeah. atomic natural like on a subatomic level like all humans are here for is for the exchange of goods and services. That's that's why God put us on this this green earth is to just exchange with one another. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve yeah. a common profit. <laughs> all men will, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> Hold the sheriff's stock. It's brilliant. And it's something that I push back yeah. on constantly, which is like, no, it's not it's not human nature to to just like be a cog in a machine. It's like we're we're here to like fulfill having have fulfilling lives and you know, build relationships and and find love. Like that's what li life is about. But this he, this articulation of this worldview, which has just become so much more pernicious in 2023 is just like it's, it's really mind-blowing how he was able to yeah. see all this ahead of time. Well, why shouldn't they make a profit? How it just immediately makes it a, it's like, this is actually a spiritual, like capitalism is a religion and it's a spiritual solution is the level that it's put at. And you can't question that, you know, like that's the brilliance of religion is mm -hmm. what are you going to question God? Like, you're not going <laughs> to question this shit. And in some ways, I think as in our just essence of being humans who have some kind of need for a spiritual understanding and reasoning and searching for why we're on this globe and this planet feeling things and wanting to be good for each other like that actually provides something to a lot of people and ultimately it's be i think the brilliance of capitalism is it understands that it's beyond economic it, it couldn't just sell you an economy like economics it had to sell a spiritual solution and that's right. what's so dangerous about it the last thing I want to hit before we go to the awards is again this like this this generational divide that he paints in this film because I really do think that this is a this is a movie about like the greatest generation versus the baby boomers um mm. and what a corrupting influence baby boomers have had on American culture you know he says in in the big scene between Max and Diana he says you are television incarnate Diana indifferent to suffering insensitive to joy all of life is reduced to the common rubble of banality it made me think i you know it actually like threaded a needle for me i read this there's this great book uh called a generation of sociopaths how the baby boomers betrayed america wow <laughs> Yeah, mom, it's, don't listen. Yeah, pretty <laughs> goes pretty hard on those poor boomers. But you know, the two the the two uh, strands that he lays out is like these are the reasons why the baby boomers are the way they are. He's like one, they inherited you know essentially the greatest uh, political economy of the you know of the twentieth century that was built by the New Deal and you know the post war boom. And the second part is they all sat in front of the fucking TV. So even so even this guy who wrote this book was like, yeah, I think I think TV was a pretty corrupting influence on this generation that actually like sequestered the young from their, you know, from like other social groups at a young age when they were like learning how learning social development, which kind of created a more mm -hmm. antisocial streak that ran through the baby boomer generation. So, uh, so it was nice to see Patty Chayefsky sort of echo the same sentiment yeah. in this. 
I mean, there's yeah. something, you know, um, I was I was very dear friends <clears throat> for the last uh, oof, 12, 13 years of his life with uh, Harlan Ellison, who was one of the great short story writers of the 20th century. He was one of the writers who made me want to be a writer. And Harlan wrote a bunch of columns. They're collected in books. The books are called The Glass Teat. Um, they're nonfiction writing. They're amazing for a lot of reasons because it was in the 60s. And I don't know if you know the books or have talked about them on the show, but he was writing in things like the L.A. Free Press and stuff, uh, political criticism of television, the kind of stuff you see all over the place now at a time when that was oh, wow. highly unusual. I mean, he would take an episode of The Partridge Family and explain why they were selling the Vietnam War using the sitcom, you know, and then he'd talk about how commercials do things to you and so forth and so on. Um, it was amazing stuff, way ahead of its time. Um, and it was also, I would say, like, if you read him and Neil Postman, you sort of have read the firmament of, like, almost all great leftist media criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, what was doubly amazing is that he was doing it while he was a working TV writer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So he knew. Stuff. So he knew. That is actually, he, like, he knew full very circle much to what we started talking about at the top. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly Harlan was, um, you know, and as a, was a good friend. And every time somebody wonders how you can get away with doing something like the West Wing and work in the in the industry, I go like, it's so it's so tiny compared to the blasphemy he was getting away with back in the day that mm-hmm. I feel okay. But um, but yeah, he talked about all this stuff, and and you know, it was right in the middle of that uh, uh, while all that was happening to that generation. It's incredible stuff. I, I will say, if you track this stuff down, I'll give one kind of so he is. As much a victim of that era, as, as, as much as he was cutting edge, there's going to be um, sexual attitudes and you know, attitudes about other things in there, mostly, mostly sexual, um, that were, uh, uh, let's say, a tad less advanced than one might want. Um, all I can say is that uh, by, the time, by the time he hit the 21st century, Harlan had, had evolved way past all of that. Mm. But uh, they're amazing, amazing pieces of criticism and well worth your time. And that's a big part about what we talk about on the show, about, uh, you know, not everything ages the best and it's important to be able to retain like the value in things that even, you know, even if even if some aspects yeah. of them are a little more unsavory in a 2023 lens. Well, in fact, just to sorry, just keep going on that. It was one of the conversations I had with him towards the end of his life. We were talking about somebody. Somebody had just been um, I think it was Morgan Freeman had just gotten into some hot water because he had done an interview and he had been a little bit flirty with the woman who was talking to him and. I could be getting the facts wrong, but the the video that I saw, I was watching like a seventy year old, seventy something year old black man from the south from a completely different era talking to a young woman. Just, there was in the context of who he was, it was completely. He's like a grandfather, you know. He wasn't even. He said something about her dress. I don't know. It was like a nice dress. The kind of stuff that had Chris Pine said it, you know, age thirty two. You'd be like, oh my god, I can't believe he said that. And there was no adjustment for the fact that this is a much older guy from a completely different culture than the one we're all living in now. And Harlan and I were talking about that. And he said, we're, we're all working to create a world in which the people who come after us perceive us as monsters. So, you know, if 50 years from now, people, people who share our politics aren't listening to this podcast and going, Oh my God, they're awful people. It's like, (laughs) we have all, we have all failed is my point. (laughs) Yeah. We're, we're all destined to get canceled at some point. That's right. Well, I think I think just to add to the conversation from my perspective on these is like, yes, we have to maintain the value, but also there's value in being critical of what we're like, how we're evolving and are not evolved selves, because I think a lot of people 
push to reject. Uh, why can't we hold on to this? And I think it requires an identity change and it requires that kind of reflection requires you to also change who you are. And I think a lot of people are afraid of that. And so re your heroes are never going to maintain, be your hero, you know, that. Right. And even with someone like, a, I don't know the Morgan Freeman situation, but I remember there was a really infamous, um, I think it was John Oliver with, who was it? It was an actor that he really kind of, kind of pushed against, which I really, oh gosh, who was it? But what came out of it was, this attitude of can it just this is who I am this is my cult I you know I grab a titty I touch a butt like let me <laughs> let me be me this is part of my <clears throat> this is part of my upbringing this is part of who I was it was like it was okay then why why right. do I have to be accountable for like my cultural inheritance and upbringing yeah. and yeah. I think the fact is as we've shift and move in our as we evolve like it probably was never cool with some of the women even in that culture they just didn't speak to it you know and so i think there's a right. there's many um dimensions to that shift but one thing tying yeah, we, back we to can go on for because it's also i mean i have a lot of women friends who are around that and came up at times that just were horrifying to me and they'll point out that that you were also inured to it in the sense that it was like not not a thing in the sense it was like oh, whatever um i mean i've heard horror stories i've heard stuff from i was good friends with an actress who was when i met her 25 years ago was in her 70s and the stuff that was to her just water off a duck's back would landed most of us in therapy yes and yeah you know because <clears throat> it was like yeah there's a system i went into you know i did fine i did great yeah i had a baseball bat i mean it's just like holy shit <laughs> yeah i mean and that's kind of what's profound and i think actually tying it back to the movie the lack of sentimentality that i think and lumet talked about um even with Diana's character that he was like told Faye Dunaway do not play this with any sentiment you know you have to play it straight you have like really avoid that and, it, and it's profound mm, now yeah. because you really see people in the in the element that in their time so even though Max is such a freaking dick like you were saying you see you understand it's connected to everything it doesn't make it excusable but it somehow is makes more sense right. than it being right. excused by some sort of like human nature that we really are all products more than we like to think of our culture and our time and that's also yeah. why in our leftist ideology we believe in systemic change and that's the path not just you have to be born a better person maybe god will right. get it better next time and it's that cynicism that i think sets something like this apart from fucking sorkin and the west wing like that la that lack of idealism that lack of aspirational like oh it's all just good we're all just good inside and at the end of the day we just want like a good nice democracy um the yeah. fact that this film is just is at the most cynical or at the least uh you know just pa paints every character with just complexity. There's just like everyone's gray. It's not yeah. like anyone's straight good and, or and bad. And so that a guy like Chayefsky who would not be able, I mean, it would be inconceivable that his ideas would be kind of more advanced than, than, than Sorkin's today in some sense. You know, you look at West Wing, I mean, one of the things that just like clobbered us doing the West Wing thing is how incredibly racist and misogynist this guy is. And, oh, yeah. you know, that's not there in network and certainly not in the same way. You know, we talked about the liberation army and so forth, but that's, that's not the kind of, you know, condescending patronizing day-to-day -day racism that you see in, in the West wing. And it's like, how is this guy more evolved 35 years earlier than, 
and kind of who we are today in many ways. I recently rewatched A Few Good Men, and I did not realize how much of that movie is just every male character telling Demi Moore how fucking stupid she is. Like, literally, like that's literally, that, that is her character arc is to be told how incompetent she is by all of the men in the movie. Sure. And also, it's Guantanamo Bay, too, right? Isn't that what they're protecting us from? It's like that old big speech. Oh, right. It's like, what are you, you're protecting us from Cubans? What the, f don't get me started. Well, speaking of... <laughs> characters and their politics. Josh, this is the part where we get to the awards for this movie. So we got three of them. First award is best politics. Goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. I would say probably Mrs. Schumacher played like so brilliantly by Beatrice Strait because I say, I think yeah. like most of these characters, as we say, are very uh, uh, morally and ethically murky. I just think like that scene, it's, it's her performance is so brilliant. She wins Best Supporting Actress for this performance. It's one of the shortest on-screen performances that still won yes. uh, in an yeah. acting category. Well, she, I think she has scene. like she got one yeah. scene. It's about like five minutes of screen time. And yeah, By and way, she's just like to, to make everything about me. It's also um, if William Hurt had won, I think he would have had almost exactly the same amount of screen time as she had. But he got he got nominated for best supporting actor for history, and only had the one scene that was almost oh the damn same length. I think only nominated. What are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was gonna say Beatrice Drake. Yeah, that would be the one. Sure. Although I don't know, she's kind of. I mean, she's just sort of submitting. You know. Mm. I guess she's understanding the world she lives in. Didn't like that submitting, but also what is she going to do? But what were her politics? Right. Like, I don't know that I could tell you what her politics were if we're being true to our own right. awards. Oh, you know, I know who it is. Is it the it's the the one member of the the gorillas the, the gorilla faction the, the Umedical who goes off Liberation and, Society? Yeah, and she's like, "Fuck this! <laughs> I can't believe you're fucking." There you go. Selling okay, out right. and you leaves. Go. You're right. There's one. One. That's it. Those are actual politics at work. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Our next award, you guessed it, worst politics. Goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. This is a good one. This is a very good one for this is a stacked mm. competition. Well, I mean, Ned Beatty, just because he's right doesn't mean he's good. No. I mean, and I, but I also wouldn't agree that he is right. I mean, he's right in that, like like this is the world like within capitalism but i don't agree with him that this is actually the world itself okay um, but but he that is that is his church i mean he worships it that's you know, yes he's like if rush limbaugh actually believed what he said i would maybe go with robert duvall's character frank hackett just because he there, there's so he has so much more agency in the film compared to ned Beatty. like he he does he's the one like executing a lot of pretty you know like ruthless shit throughout the movie you know he's the one that well, like literally executing howard beale so. and then literally executing you're right literally executing <laughs> howard beale i mean yeah i yeah so i think for that alone i gotta go with uh robert duvall as frank hackett yeah diana's pretty pretty bad that's true she's pretty bad i love it Mm -hmm. But she's not great. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I mean, she also kills Howard Beale. I think it might have even been her idea. No, no, it's it's no, uh, it's a great, it's I wish I remember the exact line, but it's 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 Duvall. He's like, well, I guess we're going to have to kill him. Yeah, <laughs> she doesn't put up a fight. All right. Our last award is Best Supporting Character, who may be even deserving of their own spinoff. The character that the movie should actually be about or who you would want to see a movie about. I would watch an entire movie about the ecumenical liberation yeah. society. 
and the Mao Zedong hour. Mm-hmm. I, I think that could that 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 that's rife for like its own satire in and of itself, especially like if you put like a 2023 spin on it and it kind of we we went back to this like the reselling of the revolution back to us kind of a thing. I think that mm-hmm. could be mm-hmm. actually I think someone should make that movie. Someone someone needs to point out how these revolutionary and radical ideas get repackaged and repurposed and resold to people. And it performs it performs our revolutionary impulses for us rather than right. actually allowing us to make any sort of material change. So that's my Diana's advice. working at Vice News. <laughs> She's like, right. <laughs> although I want to see Ned Beatty in his off hours. Like, what does he like to live with? Does he like, you know, what's what's the deal? Does he actually does he ever make eye contact with his wife and kids? You know, <laughs> he just only screams kids. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like what is that about? What is his downtime? That's it. or he's just so sweet, or he's like the sweetest guy. Right. Yeah, yeah. Everybody loves him. I think my pick might be more Diana for me. I know she has a pretty big part, but I could just where does she go from here? All right, Josh. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really lovely conversation. Before sure, we wrap, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Before we wrap, we like to ask our guests how we as artists and as people strive to practice our values in our everyday life, even with its all its com- complexities and contradictions. So is there's one thing that you do in your life, whether it's like, you know, a, a, a practice you engage in, an organization you work with, whatever it is that you where you get the chance to practice your whether they're anti-capitalist values, whatever kind of values in your life? I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. Um I mean, you know, I wish I wish calling people Nazi pricks on Twitter constituted uh, exercise. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't not. That, it doesn't not constitute. <laughs> it's not unhelpful. Uh, it's knowing exactly when to do it. Um, My dad was on the it, podcast, Josh, and he said he just woke up and said, "Fuck you, capitalism every day." <laughs> so it's there valid. You there you go. Yeah, it's tough. You know, uh, uh, um, I don't know that there's one way. You know, I try to be supportive of um, groups and people who are doing things that that I admire. I I wish I've long since given up. Um, this is just fundamental change in character. Uh, I am struck. I think it's a it's something I've seen more in men. I don't think it's built into us. I think it's cultural more than anything because I'm seeing it more in, in younger women now too, which is I think good, maybe bad. But I'm I'm from that school where you're like, I got to come up with a solution to these problems. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, my wife, who's, who's every bit as politically engaged as I am, goes off every week and she's now on the board of directors of a, a, an organization, the Hollywood Food Coalition, that does, a, you know, they feed 300 in, you know, food insecure people a night. They do amazing work. It's like they've got it down to an art where pretty much every dollar that comes in, pretty much all of it goes towards food to people. And it's like I, I revere that. I've gone down there sometimes. It always feels good to do it. And it's like, I'm like, why is, why do I feel like I need to do more when I clearly can't? And she's from that school of like, you see a thing in front of you that you might be able to have an impact on and you try to do it. I, I very often just because of the nature of my work, I've come to know a lot of people and I've exploited that to connect people in other worlds and political worlds and so forth, where I try to connect people in ways that can be helpful, just simple stuff. Sometimes I'm just helping Friends with great political podcasts get good guests who I think need to be known more in various worlds. I mean, that kind of thing. Um, obviously, you try to inject stuff into your work, but that's that's a long-term project, and it, is, it assumes that everybody else who's writing is doing the same thing and that all the subliminal stuff we're putting in there will actually have an impact, which hmm. goes to that delusion I, I mentioned first. And then just I'm, I've been a father now for 
coming up 18 months, and every every day is an attempt to uh, instill the best values in in the little schmuck um, <laughs> in, in return for what he does for me, which is. Uh, I gotta say, waking up every being being in a house where like one person wakes up every day, going, "Holy shit, I get to do this again! This is amazing! I love everything." He's really good, really contagious, and and um, I think it's an important thing to sort of try to remember in our lives that it's nice to wake up again the next morning. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know if any of that constitutes a good answer. But that was so I thought that sweet. was yes, absolutely. I thought that was a really beautiful answer. Yeah. Well, Josh, this was a lot of fun. Again, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a blast. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to mvcpod.com to find all of that info. As a reminder for next week, we will be answering listener questions. So if you have any questions for us, email us at moviesvscapitalism at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram. Thank you. Thanks all. 